Welcome to Cornerstone Reformed Baptist Church. Thank you for using and sharing our resources. What you're about to hear is God's Word from one of our teaching elders. We trust that God's Word will inspire, instruct, and bless you. For further teachings or information on our ministry, please visit us on our website at cornerstonerbc.com. That's cornerstonerbc.com. chapter 12, our reading will be from verse 27, from verse, from verse 27 through to 36. Well, brethren, we continue our journey through the gospel according to John, where in the 12th chapter, which we've been in several months, it's the latter part of the 12th chapter that is before us now, which is essentially it forms part of the, the final words of our Lord Jesus Christ's public ministry. He's only going to be around before his crucifixion for maybe, maybe another day or two, three at the very most. We don't have a time stamp in the text that is before us, so it's hard to know, but maybe two or three days before he is crucified. And the topic of the hour here in Jerusalem, very likely in the temple, is the kingdom of God. That's the topic that is of discussion, the kingdom of God. Only earlier, only days earlier, in fact, Jesus was announced by the people of Israel, the, the Jews there in Jerusalem, to be their king. That's what they professed with their mouths. So it's not unheard of or, or far-stretched to, to think that royal and regal conversations about this king are had all over the region. This was a big deal, Jesus coming into Jerusalem this year and them announcing him as king. So the kingdom of God and the topics of discussion about this king would be everywhere, in the lanes, in the streets, in their homes, around the dinner table. The kingdom of God was the topic of the hour. And there's no doubt in my mind that reading this text, that with the advent of the king, the multitudes must have had in their mind, they must have had some curiosity. They must have been thinking among themselves, what exactly is this kingdom going to be like? What exactly is the kingdom, or what type of kingdom will this king, King Jesus, finally usher in? Now, they'd heard a lot about the kingdom of God. It's not like the Old Testament is silent on the matter. It's replete with what is to be expected when the Messiah comes, the Messianic King. But now that the King has come, and they've declared and announced it with their own mouths that King Jesus has come, it is more than reasonable, more than reasonable, to desire to hear from the mouth of the King himself about what this kingdom of his is actually going to look like. So in John chapter 12, our Lord opens his mouth. In the latter verses of John chapter 12, in the final days of his earthly ministry, he gives a much-needed clarity to that end. All these people are outwardly professing Jesus to be king. If they desire to sit under his lordship, if they desire to be subjugated to him, if they desire to be his servants, then at the very least they need to know some basics about this King Jesus, they need to know some basics about the kingdom that he will be establishing. So from verse 23 onwards, that's exactly the theme of our Lord's words. He begins by speaking of himself. He begins by speaking of the king. In verse 23 through 24, Jesus speaks about the king himself. And then the kingdom 
the king's rule, the, the king's subjects or the king's servants in verses 25 and, and 26. We went through those verses and unpacked them over the last few weeks. And I have to admit, as readers of the Gospel of John, everything we read and the words I said, I hope, should seem pretty clear to our minds. It, it seems clear what Jesus is saying in these, in these words. You see, from verse 24, when Jesus says to us, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. To all of us, it seems so clear. This speaks about Jesus. It speaks about King Jesus. We know that. It's, it's, we're sure of that. But don't discount the fact that to the contemporary audience, these words were quite shocking. The king we've just celebrated is going to die? What are you talking about? What's this talk about death? This truth may have actually gone straight over their head because it was just too hard for them to conceive how this king will actually die. We accept it as 21st century Christians because we have our own presuppositions. And that's okay because we have the whole New Testament to back us up. It's all right. But it may not have been very clear to the original audience. The original listeners there in Jerusalem on this day. And admittedly, not only were the words shocking, they were, let's, let's admit it, a little bit ambiguous also. For example, in verse 23, Jesus speaks of the Son of Man. And when he does speak of the Son of Man, he speaks of him in the third person. And then in verse 24, although we know the inference is, is Christ, of course. It is Christ who is, the, who is like the seed that needs to be placed in the ground and die and then produce a, a harvest of righteousness. We, we know that as 21st century Christians, but strictly speaking, he doesn't use a pronoun, a personal pronoun, to connect himself to the seed. You see, what's clear to us in real time may not have been very clear to the, the audience before our Lord, the crowd that is listening to his words. In fact, as we move on and we look at verse 34, a verse that I read for you in our reading, it becomes very clear to us that it wasn't clear to them. You see, at this point, right here, right now, in verse 27, the crowd, they still haven't yet grasped the uniqueness of this king, but they will shortly. They will shortly. But when it comes to his subjects, because he spoke about the king, and now he speaks about the kingdom, the subjects of the, the kingdom, the servants of the kingdom. When it comes to his subjects, I think that part of the discourse is a lot clearer. The last two Lord's Days, we've been spending time to unpack that verse in verse 26, actually 25 and 26. And I think the Lord was quite clear about what he expects his subjects to be, his servants to be. And he spoke about his servants and where his expectations are for his kingdom. And then he also spoke about the reward they are expected to receive. You remember that, what their work was going to be and what their reward will be. And in essence, what our Lord was saying to the people before him who desire to be part of his kingdom, in essence, what he's saying is that he must lead and they must follow. So he leads and as his servants, his servants are to follow after him. And then the result is the father is, will honor them, will honor all who serve him wholeheartedly and love him. That part is clear because, but because many have not caught wind of the fact that Jesus must die 
Because many have not actually come to conceive in their mind that this king is actually saying that he must first die. Then they wouldn't also have been able to grasp that to follow in this king's footsteps is to follow in his death. But things will clear up soon, as I said earlier. In fact, really soon. In fact, in the verse that we're going to begin with this afternoon, verse 27, the focal point goes back from being among the servants or the servants in the kingdom to coming back to the king himself and in particular his impending death. Just to be clear. You see, the people of Israel and all of us here today, we need to understand the uniqueness of this king. We need to understand he's a unique king and the kingdom he inaugurates is also unique. He's unlike any king you have ever seen and the kingdom he inaugurates or establishes is unlike any kingdom of this world. You see, this kingdom that Jesus has come to establish will not be established in the pomp and the splendor of a royal gala. No, not at all. What our Lord is saying in these verses, and he'll continue to elaborate as he moves on in this discourse in chapter 12, is that this kingdom will be established through the shed blood of the king. You see, this is why Jesus would forbid that this people here in Jerusalem would inaugurate or coronate him as king over Jerusalem. Because the kingdom he has come to establish will require first the cross, then the crown. The cross comes first and then the crown. Now with that in mind, I want us to continue our exposition of this chapter from verse 27 where our Lord begins with these words. Now is my soul troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. We considered what Jesus means by this hour back in verse 23 a few weeks ago when we unpacked that verse and it's very clear to us when Jesus says the hour has come or speaks of the hour in essence he speaks about his death quite often through the gospels we hear he has, his hour has not yet come his hour has not yet come and then here he says he has hour has come and Jesus in a word is speaking about the time of his death has come the time after 33 years of being on this earth over three and a bit years of his earthly public ministry, the time now has come for the incarnated Son of God to lay down his life for his sheep. I've said it before and it's worth saying again that the testimony of Scripture before us is this. Jesus came to die. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to die. God's plan A, his only plan, he has no plan B, his plan A for his son to come in the incarnation from the very beginning has not changed. The cross was always in the mind of God. The cross was always going to be the climax of his earthly ministry and our Lord knows it. In fact, he knows it and that's why he says here in verse 27, put your eyes back in verse 27, he says, now is my soul troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Hear this. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. This hour is why I left heaven. This hour is why I came to the earth. This hour is why I became a man to share in humanity. This is what Jesus is saying. This hour is the very climax of my human life. This hour is the pivotal point of human history. And there's no backing down. He's all for doing the will of the Father. 
But now as the time approaches, the hour approaches, which is likely a day or two away, our Lord says, now my soul is troubled. He's in real distress here. There's distress happening in the inner being of our Lord. And I want to ask, what is it about what is yet to come that is so pressing upon his soul? Why is our Lord so distressed? Let me begin with this. The verb used here in verse 27 that describes the inner state of of our Lord's soul, it's a very strong word. Translated trouble in our Bibles, it could also mean deeply disturbed. It can mean stirred within. Brethren, beloved, this word can also be translated terrified. I know this is a point that may be of some discomfort to some, even disturbing. But what we see before us in the incarnate Son of God is his humanity. Because he was a real man experiencing real human experiences. This is the genuine anguish of the soul of Christ being brought out in this instance when he says that his soul is now troubled. The God-man, Jesus Christ, right here, right now, is experiencing real distress. But why? What is it about this hour to come that our Lord finds so deeply disturbing to his soul in the very inner being of who he is? You might say, brother, but you've already told us it's his death. That's true. But what is it about his death that is so weighing upon his soul? What element? What is the detail? What is it about his death that is yet to come in a day or two or three at the very most? What is it about it that has got his soul so troubled? What does the all-knowing incarnate son of God know about what is yet to come that has him so deeply distressed? Let's think this through. What are the possibilities? You think it may have been emotional? It wasn't emotional pain of separation that Jesus was now experiencing. Could it be that he spent so much time with those who he loves, 33 years of life, that he's developed some bonds and friendships, in particular with the disciples, the 12 or really the 11, because one of them is a devil, one will betray him. Could it be that he spent so much time that his his affection for them, his his, his heart broken because he'll come in a few days' time, he'll he'll need to separate from them? These men that he's loved so dearly that he spent day and night and they've served together, they've eaten together, they've shared beds together, they, they've gone into the, the journey of, of proclaiming the gospel together. Is, is it possible that because he's going to miss them to a point that now his soul is going into anguish? Is it his departure from his disciples that is too much to bear in his soul? No, that, that can't be it. In John chapter 16, the Lord says to console his disciples. Remember, he says, it is better that I leave. It is advantageous for you that I leave because I'm not leaving you as orphans. We went through this last week or the week before, but rather he'll, he'll be at the right hand of the Father and he and the Father will pour out his spirit, the spirit of God, his own spirit, so that he'll be in his disciples and he'll be forever with them, never to leave them, never to forsake them. No, it cannot be that. So could it be that our Lord was troubled in his soul, deeply distressed, again, for the disciples, but in another way? Could it be that he was concerned for the disciples? 
that he had a deep concern for the men who loves so dearly and the fact that he's invested so dearly and so much time into his disciples. And these men, once Jesus is departed, will be men who will lay down the foundation of the church upon the chief cornerstone that is Christ. Could it be the anguish our Lord is, is, is experiencing? Could that be rooted in a concern that once he departs, that these disciples, the 11, will actually end up falling away? That the ruler of this world will somehow deceive them in his efforts and, and, and everything that Jesus has done in the three plus years of ministry, in intimate ministry with these men, will all be lost. Could that be a possibility? Let's think about that for a moment. Jesus was with these men physically for over three years. For over three years he was among them. And they were so, so ignorant of his teachings. Even now as we speak, they're still ignorant of Jesus' own teachings. They lacked understanding they lacked discernment he even accused them on so many occasions of being of little faith how many times have you heard that where jesus says to his disciples you ye of little faith could he actually be concerned that the 11 would end up falling away once he departs no beloved no that's not it if we've learned anything as we've studied and worked our way through the gospel according to John from the mouth of our Lord himself. We know this much. The saints persevere only, only because the Savior preserves them. That's a reality that Jesus has taught his disciples over and again. You see, the resoluteness of the 11 to stay the course is not contingent. Beloved, it's not contingent upon their own strength. It's not contingent upon their own wisdom. It's not even contingent upon their own faithfulness. The only reason these 11 will stay the course, as with all the sheep of Jesus Christ, and the only reason they will bring this or finish the race is because the good shepherd, the shepherd of the sheep, will keep them and he'll lead them home. No one can snatch them out of my hand, the Lord has said. No one can snatch these sheep out of my Father's hand. I am the Father and one. He will lead them home. That is his promise to his sheep, his disciples, his people, and his promise to the Father. That all that you have given me, I will lose how many? None. That can't be it. Could it be more personal than that? Could it be, could it be that his soul was troubled because of the, of the shame to come? The disgusting, disrespectful treatment of our Lord by the hands of evil men is horrendous. Only two weeks ago, or was it three, I can't remember, Easter, we went through and I took you through the journey of, of the mock trials before the religious leaders, before Herod and Pilate, and, and you saw how Jesus was treated. It's disgusting. He was mocked. They treated him with disdain. They abused him, they scorned at him, they insulted him, they ridiculed him. There was hissing towards him, they spat in his face. They blasphemed his holy name. Blasphemed the name of the one, the son of God who's worthy of all honor and respect and glory. Is it the shameful treatment that is yet to come that is stirring up his soul? It may be for you and I, because when we think about these things, we don't want to be faced with shame and ridicule. We don't want to be spotted out, do we? We might shrink back. We might be disturbed in the soul over something like this, but not Jesus. He knows and he's convicted in his heart beyond a shadow of a doubt that his father is sovereign over all things. 
That the will of the Father will be accomplished and the timing of the Father is perfect. And wherever the Son is going, He's accomplishing the exact things that the Father wants Him to accomplish according to the agenda and the calendar of the Father. And if the Father wills it, then Jesus is going to accept it because Jesus' food, Jesus' joy is to do the will of the Father. So if even everyone stands against Him, the fact that the Father is pleased and the Son has only ever pleased the Father, Jesus is joyful. Because his food is to do the will of the Father. So I'm not going to stand here and play down the downright profanity that these religious leaders spurred against our Lord and the disrespect that is even, it's hard to even speak of. But that's not it. Could it be then that the anguish of the soul that our Lord is experiencing is the horrific pain that is yet to come? begins by the plucking of his beard, the strikes to his head, the floggings where his skin would be peeling off his back, the crown of thorns that was pressed into his scalp. Could it be that pain that he knows is coming? Or even worse, could it be the horrific pain of crucifixion to come. Remember, Jesus knows. He knows what lies ahead. He's seen what lies ahead because he is God and nothing, nothing is concealed before his eyes. Could it be the crucifixion? The physical pain? You think about crucifixion, what a horrendous way to die. Where someone is taken against his will and placed on two planks of wood on the ground that look like a cross. And what they'll do is they'll get their nails, the big, long iron nails, and they'll, they'll hammer those nails through the center of the hand into the plank on one side and then hammer into the center of the plank on the other. And then they'll fold both feet together. And right in the middle of the foot, they'll get a long, a long iron nail and they'll nail that right through two of his feet into, into the cross. And then they'll erect the cross right there. And the only thing carrying his body weight is the nails on his hands and his nails on the nail in his, both his feet. And after a while, he will sink. And the only way he can get up to get a breath is to push against that nail that, that secures both his feet against that plank of wood behind him to get a breath by sheer determination. And as he, and not long before he's up there, he's going to feel the exhaustion with every push to get a breath of air so he continues to live you feel the excruciating pain it is a horrendous way an inhumane way to die is it is it the crucifixion upon that cross that jesus is looking at and knows is coming in two one or two at the most three days is it the dreadful pain to come that has caused our lord's soul to be deeply troubled again no wasn't that either beloved I submit to you that the soul of our Lord was deeply distressed, deeply troubled for a reason that is well beyond the reasons I've just mentioned. His soul was troubled because the time has come, the hour has come for him to finally accomplish, hear this, what is depicted in his name. In Matthew 121, we're told, and you shall call him Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus meaning Yahweh is salvation. 
So, so the excruciating anguish, the, the, the troubling soul that Jesus is experiencing now as he approaches the cross that we read about in verse 27 here in John chapter 12. It, it, it pertains about what lies ahead and what is required of him to save his people from their sins. In a, in a word, he, the anguish is about what is required of him to bring atonement for his people. And anyone well versed in scripture would know for atonement to occur or to take place, first there must be a substitute. Beloved, substitute. Remember that word. Substitute. It's an incredibly important word, biblically speaking. Substitute. Never forget that word. Substitute means in my place. For atonement to take place throughout the Old Testament history, we know there needs to be a substitute. There needs to be a substitute. The great prophet John the Baptist, he alluded to this when he introduced Jesus right at the beginning of his ministry. And if you remember, you remember how he announced the Lord? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Beloved, Jesus is that substitute. The Lamb in the Old Testament, in the minds of the people of Israel, they were well versed. They understood the sacrificial system. They knew the Lamb was a substitute. That without spot or blemish, a lamb was, was brought to the altar of God and the, and the worshiper would place his hand on the head of the lamb. And then he would slit his throat and that lamb would bleed and bleed. And then some of the blood will be smeared upon the altar. And then that lamb would be carried and placed on the altar to experience burning, to burn under the the perpetual fire that is under the altar of God. You see, the worshipper was to look upon the sacrifice and recognize that the lamb is my substitute. He was, he was, he was to recognize that, and as he put his head hand on the, on the hand of that animal, he, there's an identification that, that, that there's, that animal is in some way replacing me. I, I should be there. That's the lesson that these people were being taught. That, that I should be the one who goes through this ritual. And yet, I'm not. Yet that lamb, which is without spot and without blemish, he, he bleeds to death and then, and then he's burnt on the, on the altar of God and, and I get to walk away. Why do I get to walk away and the lamb doesn't get to walk away? There's that word again. Substitute. And when that lamb is placed upon the altar of God, beloved, to burn upon the altar, that altar and the fire on the altar is a symbol of the unmitigated perpetual wrath of God upon unrighteousness. And that lamb will burn in the place of the worshiper. The worshiper walks, walks away, as I said, because there is a substitute and God will accept that substitute. But now, the spotless lamb is a depiction of the need of perfection. Without spot and without blemish, nothing short of perfect, nothing short of faultless is acceptable before God. Nothing. It needs to be perfect. That's the lesson he taught the Old Testament saints, the people of the Old Covenant, that only perfection can be accepted in the presence of God. And Jesus accomplished that perfection. 
It doesn't speak about the cleanliness of his skin, but rather of his heart. Without spot or blemish is to say that Jesus lived a perfect, faultless life to the will of the Father, faultless in his obedience, blameless in righteousness. That's Jesus. Jesus accomplished all that the Father had willed. The law of God was perfectly obeyed and the, and the special instruction and commands of the Father to the Son, he obeyed faultlessly. He was absolutely perfect. He was absolutely spotless. His perfect obedience now will be manifested in his perfect obedience in life will be manifested now in his perfect obedience to death with only a few days to go. He'll obey all the way to the cross, even the cross, even the cursed cross. A substitute for us in life and he's also in a couple of days he'll be our substitute in death. And it's the details of the substitutionary death that translate into the most unimaginable anguish of the soul of our Lord. So in the time we have left, beloved, what I want to do is I want to share with you three elements of this substitution, Jesus Christ. Three elements of his substitutionary death that I believe were at the very cause, a very root of the reason why we're told Jesus was troubled in his soul. Three truths that I want to bring out and I'll evidence them through scripture. Three truths that speak of the humanity of our Lord and the anguish that he went through, the unimaginable pain that he experienced and the sorrow he endured to redeem his people. Just to be our substitute. But I also submit to you before I begin, hear this. I don't fully understand the extent of what our Lord endured to be our substitute. I can put the details on the table. I believe them with all my heart. But I cannot plumb the depth of what it costs our Savior to redeem this wretched soul. So let's begin by what is foretold in Scripture in relation to him being our substitute. And I want to have this in the forefront of our minds as a backdrop. Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter Isaiah 53 from verse 1. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. This, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for the gen- this, his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Such a glorious prophecy. What an incredible prophecy foretold hundreds of years before the advent of the Messiah. So much I can say about this prophecy, but I'm not going to. I simply wanted to read. I wanted to read this text, this chapter, so it remains in the back of your mind or even in the forefront of your mind. Because it very much relates to what I'm going to say next. In fact, the first two points I make are directly related to this text. I'm going to make three points. Two are directly related to this text. The first I want to make is this. The reason I believe that Jesus' soul was troubled, that in his very inner being he was distressed, deeply distressed. Reason number one is as our substitute he would have to bear our sin. As our substitute he would have to bear our sin. In the text that I just read in verse 12, the Isaiah, the prophet says, He bore the sins of many. The Apostle Paul says it another way. He, said it, he says it this way. He says, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Do you hear those words? For our sake. For our sake, substitute. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Beloved, I just earlier expressed the perfect faultlessness and the, and the perfect obedience of, of Jesus that qualifies him to be our substitute. That qualifies him to be the Lamb of God without spot or blemish. I just finished making that point. The experience of sin, as far as the Savior is concerned, was completely foreign to him. He'd never sinned. Never. No small sin. Never. Perfect and blameless in every sense of the word. He'd never sinned. Unlike all of us who have sinned, Jesus was never polluted by sin. He he didn't inherit sin, in original sin that you and I have inherited in Adam. He was born of a virgin birth. 
So he was never affected by original sin and he never sinned himself. Beloved, sin, as far as Jesus is concerned, was the greatest distance away from him. He never experienced sin. He was perfect, unpolluted by sin. Pure, holy, blameless, undefiled in every way. But in my place. Christian, believer, those who have come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by his grace through faith, in my place, in order to be my substitute, he would necessarily, hear this, be made to be sin by the Father. The words of the Apostle Paul once again, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Think about that for a moment. All all the filth, all the corruption, all the wickedness, the hatred, the covetousness, Lies, deceit, sexual immorality, murder in man's heart. You, you fill in the blank with the most egregious sin that you can imagine that his sheep, that his people have actually committed. They were all placed upon Christ, imputed to him. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, he says, He himself, speaking about Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Imagine the anguish of the soul of our Savior as he approaches in a day or two that experience that the eternal righteous one, the one who knew no sin, would be wrapped in our sin and to bear our guilt whilst at the same time perfect and undefiled. Don't you for a moment think that he was defiled by that? Don't you for a moment think when the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he who knew no sin was made to be sin, but somehow that sin had defiled him, had gone into his soul. It hadn't. It was placed upon him. It was imputed upon him, just like you and I are not the righteousness of God, but we are cloaked in the righteousness of God. That is the exchange, the great exchange of, of 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus remained pure and holy and undefiled, but that sin of yours, believer, and mine, and all the Christians in the world were placed upon his shoulders, and the Lord, the Father, looked upon him as though he had committed them all. He hadn't committed them, but he was treated, he was reckoned as though he had. He was regarded by the Father as though he had. In my place, In my place, regarded by the Father to bear the greatest guilt of all, and therefore worthy of the greatest penalty of all. And that leads me to the second point I want to make. As our substitute, Jesus would bear also the penalty of our sin. That's the wrath of God. Not only would he bear our sin, but he'll bear the penalty deserving of our sin. Verse 10 in Isaiah says it this way. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. That's a very difficult text for many to swallow. Because here we speak about the, the father crushing his own son 
What actually makes it a little bit even more difficult is that the way it's rendered in ESV, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. If I was to pull back and tell you how it's written literally, it reads something like this. Yet Yahweh was delighted. Or yet Yahweh took pleasure in bruising or crushing his son. The disposition of Yahweh, the only true God, in pouring out his unmitigated wrath upon the incarnate Son of God at the cross, the disposition was one of pleasure. That's the disposition of God upon sin. Simultaneously, he continues to love his Son with an eternal love. The Son is always the object of the Father's love, and yet he was pleased. He took pleasure. He delighted in crushing his own son because God hates unrighteousness. God hates sin. That's real. God hates sin. How how, how much has that sunken into our soul? God hates sin. This is his disposition towards sin. This is what was required of that sin. That the father would crush his son, the object of his eternal love, Because he looked upon him and he made him to be seen. He was cloaked and wrapped with the sin of his people. And God delighted in crushing him to pour his unmitigated fury and his wrath upon his son. How serious is sin? How great of an offense is sin to a God of the universe? That's the disposition of God against sin. It must be dealt with. It must be dealt with. Nothing goes under the carpet. It's all going to be revealed and it all must be dealt with. A thrice holy God cannot look upon sin in favor with favor. He must deal with it. There's a Christian doctrine that many Christian circles are turning their back on and it's called penal substitutionary atonement. And that's what this text teaches us. That not only does Jesus bear our sin upon the cross, but he also bears the penalty of our sin, the iniquities our transgressions, that as our substitute, he would be required to receive in full the penalty that is deserving of our sin, the wrath of God, the fury of God against unrighteousness, against our sin. Because sin is rebellion against God and God won't take it. God won't stand for it. That's the testimony of Scripture, that God's wrath burns against unrighteousness. He cannot sit idly and look upon it. He is patient. He is patient. But he has to deal with it. His wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Romans 1, 18. And although he is so patient, in his time and in his perfect justice, he must. He must he must recompense. And that day is coming where every sin will be exposed for what it is. And he delights in carrying out his justice because his throne is founded upon righteousness and justice. And because he is holy, because he is righteous. And he demands nothing short of perfection from his creatures. 
Every man, woman, and child, and this is the dilemma of humanity, every man, woman, and child has fallen short of the glory of God, short of the standards that God requires of us. And therefore, beloved, God is pleased. God is pleased. And his wrath is satisfied either by casting a sinner into the eternal lake of fire where there is eternal torment, where the weeping and gnashing of teeth never comes to an end. And the reason why it never comes to an end is because our offense, our sin is an infinite offense to an infinite God. He's either pleased in that because his justice is exemplified or he's pleased in pouring out his wrath upon his own son to crush his son upon the cross as a substitute for many for those who would come to trust in him you, you stand here today and you fit in one of those two categories there is, there is no other category either you stand on your own before the God of the universe who sees all, who knows all who sees everything and you can't hide anything. He sees right into the crevices of your heart and mind that we don't even know exist. <clears throat> or you stand wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because he was wrapped in your sin and he bore the penalty of your sin upon that cross. How glorious. God's wrath completely satisfied in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon that cross. You see, that's why Jesus became man. He needed to share in our humanity. He needed to be our brother in order to walk according to the law of God, the will of God for humanity, for human beings. A, a life that you couldn't live, a life I couldn't live, a righteousness we could not attain to. But he could and he did. And not only was he to live a perfect life as a substitute, but also he needed to die the death upon that cross as also in our place in sharing of our humanity and he was willing for those who trust in him and upon that cross he drank the cup of God's wrath his fury in full so that the apostle Paul is able to say through inspiration of the spirit that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus it's paid and it's paid in full if you've come to trust in Jesus Christ. That brings me to the third thing and the final point that I want to make. I think this is the I think this is the most difficult thing for our Lord. I think his soul was most greatly troubled and distressed because of what I'm about to say. And it's this point, my beloved, that I'm unable to explain to any level of satisfaction, I think. But I need to mention it. As I said earlier, I believe it wholeheartedly. I do. But as of yet, I haven't come to fully understand it. And that's a confession from my heart to yours. But in good conscience, I will mention it. I believe our Lord's soul was troubled. Because on the cross, he will bear our sins in his body. Because on the cross, he will receive the punishment or the penalty deserving of our sins. But also on the cross, he will be, hear this, forsaken by the Father on our behalf. Matthew 27 verse 46 says, 
At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Elahi, Elahi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a quotation of Psalm chapter 22. And I believe this was the moment. This was the most gut-wrenching, agonizing moment in the life of our Lord in his earthly ministry. There's so much I don't know about those words. There's so much in the decades that I've tried to understand them to the fullness. And I have not come to be able to understand them. So I'm not going to stand here and say I do understand them. Because I don't know. I, I don't know. I believe. But I don't know. But I will tell you what I, what I do know, beloved. Let me just begin with what I do know. I know that God is holy, holy, holy. He's thrice holy. And as such, his disposition towards sin and unrighteousness is that he cannot, he cannot look upon sin favorably. He cannot look upon sin favorably. Yahweh in the old covenant is said to have turned his head or hide his face and even forsake the unrighteous. The prophet Habakkuk, speaking of Yahweh, he says these words, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 17, speaking about the unrighteousness of, of Israel, Yahweh says, My anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them. And I will hide my face from them. I will abandon them, the same word that is used of Jesus upon the cross. It's a terrifying thing for God to turn his face, for God to forsake. It's a terrifying thing for God to turn his face, to abandon. How often do we hear the heartfelt cry of the, of the saints of the Old Testament? In their prayers, when they come before the Lord, they say, hide not your face from me. Turn not your face from me. Please, Lord, don't forsake me. Don't leave me on my own. I'm wretched on my own. Oh, Lord, have favor upon me. Their heart is broken when they pray these, pray these words, especially in the Psalms. And here we have Jesus on the cross saying with his words, with his mouth, on the ninth hour, just before he dies, just before he gives up his spirit, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every time we read of those words in the Old Covenant, it's against filth. It's against wickedness. It's against unrighteousness. It's against those who, who worship the Baals and the Ashtaroths and the Dagons. It's against those who hate God and sin against Him with a high hand. Every single time. How is it that our Lord proclaims from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How am I to understand that? I can't plumb the depth of these words, beloved. I cannot. But I know, I know the testimony of Scripture reveals that upon that cross hung my Savior. 
the God-man. Both fully God with divine nature and fully man with human nature. Without confusion, without mixture, without division, without separation. Ever. The moment of the incarnation, those two natures become one person, never to be separated. And as the Son of God, his union with the Father is eternal, it's unbroken, past, present, future. We know that. We know that any separation in the Godhead for even a moment, and God ceases to be God, it's impossible, it cannot happen. The closest fellowship that existed from eternity past is that of the eternal Father with the eternal Son. If anyone knew the intimacy of such a union, it's Jesus. I and the Father are one. And yet he utters these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? why what happened on the cross is still a mystery to me because this Jesus my saviour the God man he experienced upon that cross when he uttered my God my God why have you forsaken me was definitely not the sweet communion he was used to from eternity past if anyone would know he would know And I'm not going to stand here and tell you that I understand it all, because I don't. And nor am I going to stand here and tell you that Jesus uttered those words because it felt like he was forsaken. If my Lord said he was forsaken, my Lord was forsaken. How exactly, I don't know. But I believe, and I know, and I know my Lord is true. But I can tell you from what I read and from what I understand, the limited understanding that I have, I cannot even begin to imagine the agony that he experienced upon that cross. Unimaginable agony. Such was the price to redeem my soul. Such was the price to redeem your soul, Christian. The price he was willing to pay. How great is his love? That's what was required to be my substitute. I had some applications, but I think I want to leave it there. Let's just. Let's leave it at the love of God through Christ Jesus and the unimaginable agony that he experienced on our behalf. It is a mystery. But what it took place upon that cross, beloved, is far greater, far wider, far richer than you and I will ever imagine. And it ought to leave us in a disposition of love 
and worship and honour of our great God in Christ Jesus. Let us pray.